Ben Fishman currently serves as the CEO of MGemi, a luxury footwear brand that releases new handcrafted shoes every week, which are made in Italy. Ben is a serial entrepreneur with over 20 years of experience launching and building successful companies, including Rulala, one of the earliest players in the digital private sales space, and SmartBargains.com, the off-price e-commerce marketplace. Ben was also the first entrepreneur in residence at General Catalyst Partners, a premier venture capital firm that invests in innovative technology-based companies. So the, 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 for us, the focus has always been on all the things I've done, is where are those little moments where you can surprise people with delight when it comes to the brand? And when they notice these things, maybe it's the third or fourth time they've even experienced you, that something new happens that they didn't notice before. So in essence, the brand keeps unrolling and unveiling itself. Um, and to, to me, that is the magic behind it. In this illuminating discussion, Ben reveals the entrepreneurial skills necessary to innovate across diverse industries and build companies that change the way people shop, think, and live. Please enjoy our conversation with Ben Fishman. You're listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life. And our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com. Attaining quality sleep is key to a healthy lifestyle and vital in achieving success. Plenty of research has shown the indisputable benefits of getting a good night's rest. InstaSleep is a drug-free, quick-melt sleep aid that is gluten-free, kosher, and non-habit-forming. They taste great and help you fall asleep faster without morning grogginess. An indispensable travel essential for busy professionals, frequent travelers, and jet-setters alike InstaSleep helps counter jet lag and sleep deprivation caused by time zone changes. Ivy Podcast listeners get 18% off by using promo code IVYSLEEP at checkout on Amazon. Learn more on their website, www.upgradeyoursleep.com. Upgrade your sleep with InstaSleep Mint Melts and take on the day. So I was an accidental entrepreneur. Um, I didn't grow up saying I want to start companies. Um, there's some people who early on open the lemonade stand and they go from the lemonade stand to a paper route and from the paper route to the next thing. Um, I really didn't know that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I was much more like what I would guess is most of the people in the room when we were back in school for some of us a long time ago. I had no idea what I wanted to do and I had no idea how the school that I was attending and the classes that I was taking were going to direct me towards what it was I wanted to do. Um, so I was classically undirected. Um, and like a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, I was a mediocre student at best, uh, and, and sitting in my, in my room, uh, in my dorm, studying was an impossible task for me. I was an experiential learner, um, so um, I had to do it to, to learn it, and simply reading a book or, or writing it up or whatnot was not the way that I was going to succeed. Um, I didn't realize that that was just a different quality. I thought that was a, a deficiency at the time. Um, but it turns out that we all learn differently. And we all 
uh, apply our learnings differently. So, so I was a lousy student, and that go, and I put my family through anguish because that lousy student part started when I was in first grade and continued straight through college. Um, and never wanted to do the work and never understood why you needed to, but I was incredibly creative at getting away with not doing the work. Um, and you know, I was that, that fearless guy that would show up at school day after day not having done the homework. And most people would not know how to deal with that angst. And I didn't have an issue with it. I could deal with that angst through some creativity. Did you have um, a major? Uh, I did. I was a communications major. Um, and I was a good communicator. Uh, and, I could, and I could talk my way out of a lot of stuff. And, and I'm not overly proud of the fact that I was a lousy student. And I don't, you know, when I talk to my kids, I tell them how much harder it was not to do the work than it would have been just to do the work. Um, but I, did, I wasn't wired that way. It wasn't that I was being lazy. I wasn't wired to learn the conventional way. Um, and my entrepreneurial um, world sort of opened up when I simply saw a market opportunity. And I never would have described it as a market opportunity. Uh, my friends and I all wore baseball caps. It was as simple as that. And our baseball cap was part of our, it was just part of our wardrobe. You put on your jeans and you put on your t-shirt and put on your hat. And we had a few hats that we loved. We had a few hats that, that we would sooner give you the wallet out of our pocket than the hat on our head. It was that special to us. Uh, and it was that special to us because there was this ridiculous thing, which is you could walk through the malls at the time, and there was dozens of stores that sold caps, but we didn't like any of them. Walls of hats, none of them were even close to appealing to us, which simply spoke to a market opportunity, which was that the supply chain didn't understand what the consumer wanted. Once again, these are not ways that I would ever describe it then, but that's what I was thinking, is how could this be? Um, and through, through naivete, um, I thought we could change that and made some phone calls and thought about ways that we could do it and didn't understand why you couldn't get the right product. Made some calls, found some product that was actually on closeout because the brands didn't think that those styles mattered anymore um, and opened up a kiosk, uh, a cart at the time, um, saw sort of, didn't know what I was doing, but I thought I understood the, the product and the customer and saw unique success right away, not because of any brilliant strategy, but because we understood the customer and there was this massive void that every college kid in the Boston market knew about. Every kid from BC, every kid from BU, every kid from Northeastern, all of these kids all wanted the same things that me and my buddies at BU wanted. Um, and coincidentally, as, we, as, we, as I started this business, um, I sl and, and got incredibly busy at, at work and while my friends began, continued to have the fun that I was having with them just days beforehand and weeks beforehand, suddenly as I got really busy at work, I actually got better at school too. And things sort of began coming together. This was my junior year of college. Um, and I suddenly became a serious dude with, with a serious opportunity and wanted to take advantage of it. And I never took myself too seriously, but I was incredibly passionate and incredibly intense about the so opportunity. So despite the success of Lids, you didn't drop out, you didn't go the Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg method? I, I didn't go the Zuckerberg method because one, that wasn't such an alternative back then. So, <laughs> so Zuckerberg's a lot younger than me. Um, now you could, say, you could say that Bill Gates was a lot older than me and he figured it out. Um, I wasn't that smart. I was selling baseball caps. Like I wasn't reinventing the world. Um, and, and by the way, there's not, that has stayed really true from, from then till now, which is what I do and what my teams do and my partners do, we do simple stuff. You know, we're a little bit of the Seinfeld, for those who understand the reference, I have to say that now, because, <laughs> um, but we're a little bit of the Seinfeld of, of building businesses. We look at everyday life and we say, what's missing in everyday life? 
Like, what hasn't been, why hasn't this been tinkered with? Um, just like Seinfeld made fun of everyday life, and why don't more people make fun of the everyday life? Um, we think that's the case in business. So anyhow, saw the opportunity with, with Lids and, uh, and, and where the void was in the market. And there was one big, big idea that we had, and that big idea was um, completely different than the manufacturing community understood. The manufacturing community believed that the hat was all about the decoration. It was all about what was on it. It was all about the team or the design. We believed, very simply, the hat was all about how it fit. That was all that mattered. In fact, the more, the more obscure and, and, and sort of not known the design, the better. Um, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't supposed to be this big sort of um, a sign that you wear on your head. It was supposed to be part of your wardrobe. We wore it as a fashion accessory. We wore it as part of our look. Uh, and the manufacturing community didn't understand that at all. And that was before Abercrombie was selling hats and The Gap was selling hats and J. Crew. Um, and really what we focused on was perfecting the fit of the product. And the manufacturing community really didn't agree with us. Um, they, they, they didn't understand it. It took a lot of effort to get them to understand it. Um, they thought we didn't know what we were doing. And slowly but surely, um, the results started to prove themselves out. Now, that's sort of a, a, a simple story. There was challenges everywhere. And, and I learned, you know, my greatest lessons still were from those first three years, my first three years at Lids. And the first lesson and the most important lesson for me was that I had this unique opportunity. I had a massive, massive ego for LIDS, this new concept that we had developed, that I had developed, and I'd gotten people excited about, and I'd somehow convinced some investors to get excited about. And I was not caught up in me. I was purely caught up in this thing that we had stumbled upon that looked like it could be really interesting and really big and really exciting. And so my ego didn't get in the way of surrounding myself with a lot of people that knew a lot of stuff that I didn't know, because I didn't know a lot. I had a really unique opportunity, which is I thought I understood the customer and what the customer wanted, and that it was innate to me. I just got it. It made sense. The consumer demand part made sense. I didn't know how to run a P&L. I didn't know how to run a network of stores with district managers and area managers. Um, I didn't understand many of the, of the details of running a business. And unlike a lot of entrepreneurs who really believe, and this is the, the most important lesson of that time for me, who really believe they need to be the smartest person in the room all the time and that they need to have all the answers to all the questions because they're always proving that they're worthy as an entrepreneur. They're always proving that they are as brilliant as their idea. Um, and that scares people away, right? Great people don't want to come and work for an entrepreneur who is trying to do everything on their own and has all the answers. Great people want their space to, to be great on their own. Um, so I learned out of necessity, not because I was, and, and maybe naivete, but not because I was brilliant. I learned out of necessity to surround myself with people that knew a lot of stuff that I didn't know. And to this day, when people ask, what's the secret sauce behind the stuff that you do, the success comes from a great team who knows a lot of stuff about a lot of things and is given the room to do it. And the failure comes when I don't succeed and my partners don't succeed in building that great team. And it's almost binary. It's almost literally, if the business is doing, if you have a good idea with a great team, you're going to build a really interesting business. If you have a, if you have a great idea with a mediocre team, you're going to build a shitty business. Um, and it, I, I can't overrate the quality of the team that, that I have needed to find success along the way um, and understanding where I can make the biggest impact on a business and where the team needs to step up and, and make their impact. And that was at LIDS lesson A1A. Um, I also learned at LIDS a huge lesson on when not to give up too much control. Uh, early on, I was romanced by the opportunity to bring some people on board that have been there and done that. And we had built this really unique culture and, 
and it was a culture that was about grinding away and scrappiness and you know we didn't have any real desks we had planks of wood that we all used and it was just the environment that we wanted to create and and everybody wanted to come work for this little company called lids we brought on board an executive that had been there, done that. He was a former CEO of a company called Sunglass Hut, which most people have probably heard of. And they were a similar example to Lids. They were what we called ourselves as a small format category killer. Um, and Sunglass Hut had built this small category, small format category killer, rolled out stores across the country. Um, their CEO left for a bunch of reasons, and we didn't understand some of them well enough. Um, and we hired this person, and, and this person made some immediate impacts on the culture that really devastated the business. And the culture is what makes a business, and it's what breaks a business. And um, by hiring the wrong person early on and by ceding too much authority to that person, um, the business almost went away, literally almost went away. Uh, we were able to turn things around and, and ensure that, that it continued to be a success, but it was, it, was a, it was some of the hardest time that I've been through. Um, I never wanted to be the guy that didn't give up the authority at the right time to people that had been there and done that. But I also learned, boy, there's a wrong time and there's a wrong person to give that authority up to. And there's certain authority you shouldn't give up. There's certain things that, that as much as you want to be smart and share the, the opportunity and, and get help, there's certain things that, that you need to own to ensure that it's done properly. Do you want to tell that anecdote about uh, giving away office for someone that has higher merit? The, the more senior the, so the person. The, yeah, so, so one of the first things this gentleman did, how'd you know that story? I know everything. Oh, Jesus. So, <laughs> Google. <laughs> so, um, so one of the things that this, this, this new CEO did is within like the first three weeks of coming and joining us, he developed a hierarchy for office furniture. If you were a C-level executive, you got this package. If you were a director, you got this package. And it, and to us, it was the most foreign. And that was because he wasn't comfortable with the furniture that we had. We didn't have time to worry about furniture. Almost, by the way, erroneously so, we didn't have time to worry about silly things like office decor. And there's probably ways that we could have professionalized the environment more. It just wasn't what mattered to us. We were busy building a business and building a culture and not worrying about office furniture. And that simple hierarchy that was created by furniture. I mean, you hear it now, it's like, are you kidding me? But that simple hierarchy created a... It was like there's a, new, there's a new sheriff in town and there's a new methodology and there's a new value statement and it's completely different than what it was and we hope you're ready for it. And, um, and it was scary times. It was, it was, and, and, um, he lasted about almost two years. Too long? Um, two years too long. Yeah, um, a day too long. A day too long. Because if, you know, if we had done our homework properly, we would have learned that the romance of the experience that he had had while sounding perfect. We've all seen the resume. Oh my God, that's the, that person did this, this, and this. I gotta get him in my company. I need to do that exact same thing. And you can't hire people that way. We all know that now, and I know that more than ever now. But at the time, I didn't know that. My board wasn't savvy enough to know that. My board knew they had a young, super passionate kid at the helm of this company that was critical to its success, but that with a partner that had done it before could help make it that much better and that much bigger. And my God, he's actually, the founder is actually receptive to, to bringing someone on board, it felt like the perfect situation. Um, and, and lots of lessons learned there. Um, so that's LIDS in a, in a nutshell. There's, I could talk all night about it um, because there's so many additional lessons, but I don't think we have time. We don't. We have plenty to catch up on. One more Google anecdote, though. If anyone uh, looks up Ben Fishman on YouTube, there is a wood carving champion 
uh, named Ben Fishman. Who is <laughs> not bad. me. Who is not you. And I was like, oh my God, this guy's a wood carving champion. I have to talk about this. You're like, oh my God, Ben's a renaissance man. <laughs> He's <guy's> amazing. <laughs> Holy shit. Uh, so we, we talked about uh, the story of your brand uh, with Lids, and then you went into uh, MJemmy, but before that was Rula La and Smart Bargains. Yep. Why, you said innovating on, on things that people aren't and not reinventing the wheel. How did you keep landing yeah. on fashion? So um, I'm not going to answer that directly no at problem. first. I'm going to answer it. I'll get to it, though. So after, after Lids, um, I, was fair, I went through an identity crisis, and I was fairly certain that all the things that I had just been through and just learned were not applicable to anything else in the world. It was just the baseball cap. I didn't realize that actually we didn't, the baseball cap had very little to do with what we had just built. Um, but when it's your first business and it's all you've ever done at us since being in school, you're not sure who you are or what you are. Um, and, and that was also a pretty important time for me in trying to figure out um, what it was I was good at, what I wanted to get better at, and how those skill sets were applicable. Um, and so I went to General Catalyst for a little while, and those guys have been friends of mine, and I sat there, and, and I think entrepreneur in residence may be the worst job in, in Does all Does everyone of, know what General Catalyst is? General Catalyst is a venture capital firm uh, based here in Boston and the West Coast, and, and I was their first entrepreneur in residence when they were an early firm, and the entrepreneur, residence, the entrepreneur residence job, I think, is one of the worst jobs in the world, because it's a job where you come in and you have absolutely no responsibility and you have absolutely no role, yet you can give feedback on things, although you're not sure where your boundaries begin and end. And when you come from being the CEO of a business or a senior director of a business and you have very distinct accountability, you're not sure what to do. And so that added to my neurosis of trying to figure out what I should do next. Um, but then they threw me into this situation that was a business they had invested in that was struggling. Um, and that business was this company called Smart Bargains, and, um, which was a product of the first wave of the internet prior, prior to the popping of the first bubble. And um, all of a sudden, I very quickly realized, oh my God, I actually know more than I thought I knew. And I saw how applicable um, many of the lessons that I had been through were. And so jumped in to help try to figure out smart bargains and apply some practicality to it and mostly try to figure out the brand equation. So someone asked about brand and what is the inspiration behind brand. And to us, it's everything. It, it, but a brand is not about a logo and it's not about a, a, a language or a mark. It's about every little detail within the customer journey and every little aspect of every little experience from what your packaging looks like, from what your outer box that UPS delivers to your house looks like, to the name tags that might be on people if you need them, to uh, how you answer the phone at your home office. It's every little detail. When people say you, don't, you, you shouldn't sweat the details, you have so much to do. When it comes to brand, you sweat every detail because you build brands in the little battles and in the little moments. And so the, 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 for us, the focus has always been, and all the things I've done, is where are those little moments where you can surprise people with delight when it comes to the brand? And when they notice these things, maybe it's the third or fourth time they've even experienced you, that something new happens that they didn't notice before. So in essence, the brand keeps unrolling and unveiling itself. Um, and to, to me, that is the magic behind things. So knowing that, we went into Smart Bargains. I went into Smart Bargains to try to help figure out what to do with it um, and turn that business into something more meaningful. The team and I turned it into something that actually meant something. Uh, we then actually developed the notion for Rula Law and sold part of the Smart Bargains business and then rolled the rest of it into this new initiative, um, which, which was at the time and now still is Rulala. Um, and the idea there was, was, was actually really simple. For a long period of time in this first early wave of the internet and e-commerce, people were really preying very simply on the notion of convenience. 
that there's this great thing called the internet and you can now buy from home versus having to drive to a store. And while that's really powerful and Amazon's proved that it appears to work, um, it can't be the only reason. Convenience to us is a little bit of a dirty word um, because convenience really is not a competitive barrier. Convenience is not an emotional barrier. It's, it's almost a, just a, a need, a universal need. Um, and we want, we want emotion. To, you know, brands are about emotion, and emotion is about action. So most people in this early phase of e-commerce were focused on convenience, and they were saying, well, in the offline world, you sold this phone this way. And in the online world, we're going to sell the phone the same way, except we're going to deliver it to you via postage versus you driving. And so they were, the, the two methodologies were the exact same. They weren't doing anything different. And our belief when we were starting up Rulala was, God, the internet is so convenient. It's so easy. There's so much choice. It's so easy to go from one brand to another brand, from one place to another place, to abandon your shopping cart and come back later. To There's no commitment. How do we engage the customer and create theater that makes people want to act, creates urgency, creates excitement? Um, how do we create an attachment to the brand that gets people a little bit obsessed? And one of the words that, that I use most and our team uses most, most even today is the notion of building obsession. An obsession doesn't mean um, craziness, but it means that your relationship with the brand is more than you would think a transactional relationship would be. It's a relationship where your friends are like, God, shut up already about Rulala. It's all you talk about. Or let me guess, Rulala. And it's, it's when you just talk about it more and more and more than you would, might normally expect. And um, all of that really didn't exist in e-commerce at the time when, when we started Rulala. That was more of an old-fashioned brand-building technique that people thought was the old way. Who needs brand builders anymore? This is back in 2002, 2003. Who needs 2004? Who needs brand builders anymore? Now it's all about the internet and e-commerce. And, and what we all know and what's come full circle over the last 15 years is at the end of the day, it's about building brand. And it's about building emotional connection. And it's about building obsession. So Rulala was our attempt at taking an offline business called the off-price world, the same way that TJ Maxx or Marshalls or the outlet malls did things, and making it sexier and theatrical and exciting and, and addictive in the online world, and actually making it an aspirational shopping process versus what the physical off-price world was which was, yeah, a treasure hunt, but not necessarily an aspirational experience, a little bit more of a down and dirty experience. Um, so if you went to our warehouse for Rulala, it looked like one of the off-price stores. It's truly what the, when you walked in, you saw racks and racks of stuff. Um, when you shopped Rulala on the site, it looked like a beautiful experience with beautiful product. So what did that mean? Well, the brands loved it. The brands loved it because they could take their what they thought was their older merchandise or their less valued merchandise and make it look great so it wasn't creating erosion for their brands. It was actually turning it into a positive. The customer loved it because they were paying a fraction of a price for a product that was beautiful and looked fabulous. Um, but at its core, Rulala was a really simple idea. It was taking off price and reinventing it in a digital environment. It was controlling the brand experience and every little bit of that brand experience. Um, and it was cr about creating urgency, excitement, and theater. Um, and to this day, I mean, the rule of law business now, I think it's, you know, I, I actually probably shouldn't even say the numbers, but it's, it's, it's a big business, probably just shy of a billion dollars in revenue. And, and um, while the flash sale industry is a very different place today than it was, we never thought of rule of law as part of a flash sale industry. We thought of rule of law as an amazing shopping experience. And I think the growth is suggesting um, that, that the customer believes that as well. Absolutely. 
And Ben was one of the pioneers to create sort of brick wall when you came to a website and, and building that exclusivity when you had that, that referral invite-only model. It was a crazy idea back then. And actually, that we, we, we think about that a lot in our current business. Back then, we were saying, what do we do to, to, to create like almost shock and awe? What do we do that is so disruptive that, and so ridiculous and so against common business practices that it actually creates excitement and creates uh, a level of virality. And when we first launched, and this was before any of these other flash sales sites existed with front doors that you couldn't get in. You know, before it was, how do we, what, how on earth do we get people into our store as fast as possible? And we, you got to our front door and you couldn't come in unless you were referred by a friend. You literally couldn't get in. And we stayed true to that for four straight years and what happened is obvious, which is our customer acquisition costs ended up being close to zero. And we built a file of a million plus people in the first couple of years. Um, and it was crazy at first. Like literally people thought we were absolutely out of our minds. The other piece was we, we always bought inventory fairly aggressively, but our goal was to sell out. We didn't play games. We didn't buy six pieces and sell out and everyone thought, wow. But we always did want to sell out because we thought we, training the consumer that you really do have to get in there quickly and have a level of urgency. We thought that was critical. Um, and I guess that came in, in, a, in an important process that we developed at that time that we've now since done at other businesses, which is the management team of Rue Law sat around a table and we put a bunch of stakes in the ground. Stakes that we would not violate. Simple things like we will never do um, free shipping. We will, never, we, will always, we will never repeat one brand more than once every three months. We will never, our goal will never be to maximize sales. Our goals, goals will ever be to always be to sell out. And there were little stakes and big stakes. And I think there was a dozen stakes. And the agreement was if we're going to change any of the stakes in the ground, we can change lots of stuff, but if we're going to change any of the stakes in the ground, we have to reconvene as a team and agree unanimously to make those changes. And why was that so important? Because when you're in the heat of the moment, when business sucks one day and you want to drive business, when you have a bad week, when there's a new idea that you think can accelerate business, you do it in the moment because you're trying to fix a short-term problem. And if you had some patience and some resistance, you wouldn't do it because the odds are you're going to regret that short-term thing that you change. Once you become promotional, it's a drug. You keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And so we wanted to make sure there was a structure in place that stopped us from making short-term decisions that we would regret later. Uh, and it turned out to be a pretty important part of the process. So having being so disciplined about certain things like that, is that also carry over into your leadership style, into personal life? I think a lot of people in the number party probably leaders in their business or would like to one day be on a senior leadership team. What is your leadership style? How do you carry it through to your team? Yeah, so I don't think that my team would describe me as the most disciplined person in the world. <laughs> um, I am, I, am a, I am ridiculously focused on the things that I believe make the brand important that I believe are non-starters that you, no matter what, you have, to, you have to follow through on, you have to live up to, and there's, there's literally no compromise. That These are the things that we're going to do, period, unless there's a really thoughtful way in which we decided not to do them. So that's, I think, where I'm at my and do most... Do those differ between company? Always. Or between every, yeah. every company, every business has different thoughts that way, but it, it's what makes this thing special. You know, we have this... At MGemi, we launch new shoes every Monday, um, and part of the excitement of MGemi is that our rapid supply chain providing this incredible high quality every, with some new deliveries every Monday at prices that the customer's never seen before. 
Um, Mondays become a really special day, and Mondays usually suck for people, right? Mondays are a down day, you're at work, you just came off a weekend. Um, Mondays are our number one volume day. We're probably the only retailer in America that, where Monday is their biggest sales day of the week. And our belief is that, is that momentum builds in a business. So if you start a week well, the odds are you're gonna have a good week. If you start a week shitty, you're gonna probably have a mediocre week. And so we wanted to, but, but most importantly, we wanted the customer to know, from an engagement perspective to know Mondays were important. So um, we bring in shoes sometimes and we'd like to launch them on a Wednesday or a Thursday or a Friday because it creates more excitement, we have more, and, and the answer is no. No matter how tempted we have been over the years, over the past two years to do it, and we have this debate monthly probably. We have to stick with Mondays, that's the day. For, well, we're talking to ourselves, the customer doesn't know, then we have to explain better. But the answer isn't, let's compromise. The answer is, what are the key disciplines of the business? And no matter what, we have to stay focused on them. I think, from, a, from my own leadership style, um, I'm a pretty passionate guy about what I do. Um, I think the biggest growth that I've had personally is making sure that, that my passion is measured, and that passion can get you only so far, and that substance and fact and discipline is critical. So I think my passion is what gets the team motivated and excited. It's what allows me to recruit fairly effectively. Um, but I think very quickly making sure that you tone it down and focus on execution. It's been one of my biggest growth um, opportunities over the years and one that I'm always focused on and knowing when to dial it back and when to not let passion get in the way of substance and execution. Um, and knowing where I need to seed my, because I'm not the most organized guy, and because I'm not the most disciplined process guy, first of all, make sure I surround myself with people that are at all times. And secondly, let people know what they're in charge of and what they own, and let them own it, period. And I can question it, and I can debate it, but I can't backseat drive, and I can't talk about the way it should have been, because I gave someone the authority to do it. And the minute you give someone the authority to do it, and then you tell them what they did sucked, is the minute they never do it again. Um, so th that's a little bit of how I try to compromise my style and my skills with my teams. Great. I like that. <laughs> so before we talk about MJemmy, I think we should talk about Launch, which MJemmy came out of, correct? Yep. Uh, if anyone's familiar with Launch, you're probably not that familiar because I know from today you can't find anything about it. Um, this is Ben's new project that he works on and then launches uh, some amazing products out of it, um, if you want to touch on. So after we sold Rue La La, um, uh, I, stayed, I had to stick around, and I wanted to stick around, I should say, for a few years. Um, and I was trying to think about what it was I wanted to do, next, to do next, and a couple of my partners who were with me were trying to figure it out. And we were being pulled into the venture world by people that had invested in us and seen some success with us in the past and thought that it was time that we now begin investing in advising businesses. And for like 30 seconds, I considered doing that. But I love operating. I love what most people hate. I love like the early days of total chaos and confusion and, and heart-wrenching pain when because it's so hard to get the simplest things done, building the team. So those are the moments that, while at the, at the time you're doing it, it sometimes feels, feels tough, um, it's really what is invigorating to me and it's what I love to do. Uh, my question was, can you start more than one business at a time? Can we leverage this playbook that we built over the years through success and through failure and create more than one brand at a time without the vanity of thinking that I or someone else could be the CEO of more than one company? Um, and that's where we took this sort of Seinfeld effect, which isn't a metaphor I've used before. You guys have never heard that before, have you? So um, the idea was to identify new opportunities in the market that were in essence about reinvention and not invention. We are not inventors, we are reinventors. Looking at existing industries, whether it be 
whether it be e-commerce businesses or whether it be food and beverage businesses, whatever the sector would be, so long, it was in the, so long as it was in the consumer world and within an industry that we had some relative experience of being in, um, could we develop new business models that took proven categories, proven winners, and simply layered on top of those categories new modern thinking, um, advances in technology, supply chain, brand building, um, with the core thesis that the incumbents are least likely to innovate, that the incumbents are least likely to disrupt. So by definition, we wanted to go after really crowded industries. Um, and the goal would be to build individual businesses, standalone individual businesses with standalone teams in their own office spaces, because the office space and the team is what the culture is. So you can't create a bunch of businesses together and share everything and think you're gonna have a culture. Each of these businesses had to be uniquely different. Uh, and so we got some venture firms excited about it who invested in launch, which was the idea of creating these new businesses. We built a whole bunch of filters around what kind of businesses we would want to be in and what we wouldn't want to be in and how we sort of test these businesses. Um, filters, for example, one is had to be consumer. Two, brand has to be at the center of everything we do. Brand has to be at the center of everything we do because we believe that that emotional connection, that obsession, whether it once again is food or services or experiences or products, Obsession leads to goodness. Um, so a brand is critical. Um, we have to have an unfair advantage. We hate an even playing field. We hate a fair fight. We have no interest in fighting fair. We have to have some tangible thing that allows us a better chance for success than others. And it can't be that we're smarter and it can't be that we're faster because on any given day, you're gonna, be a, you're gonna find someone faster and you're gonna find someone smarter. So each of our businesses have some tangible unfair advantages that give us a better chance for success than others. And as evidence of us going after big industries, we've launched three businesses to date. We have a fourth that's being built, the first being MGemi, the women's shoe business. And, the, and the, the, the only sort of funny part about that is we were in a, in a garage basically working on MGemi for, for six, eight, nine months before the world knew anything that we were doing. And everybody was curious what we were up to. It must be this really breakthrough thing. And I remember we came out and we were like, okay, so we're gonna unveil what we're doing, guys. And we went and talked to different people and we said, we're starting a woman's shoe business. And it was like the greatest letdown of all time. That, <laughs> they, they couldn't believe that's what we were creating all this time. Little did they know what we were actually creating was a very completely new way to think about shoes because a lot of what MGemi is, in the eye of the consumer, it's this beautiful brand that sells beautiful Italian shoes. But it really is a supply chain, a reinvention of, an, of a complete supply chain and taking this old world of incredible Italian craftsmanship and applying a level of data science and predictive analytics and rapid, and rapid production that had never been done in this old country. Um, and, the, and the cultural battles to create that are what makes the business so unique and so special. Um, so that, the first business is women's shoes. The second business is a kids apparel business called Rockets of Awesome, which is in essence a sort of stitch fix plus more for, for moms that allow them to, to help that take an awful process, which is buying clothing for your kids, and actually make it a fun and engaging process with your kids. Um, so, so now we're in shoes, kids apparel. The third one is a clean beauty business, um, which is that there's toxins in all the beauty products we all use every day. And there's a company called Full Lane that we're building that, um, is, that its mission in life is to have, help us stop using this horrible stuff. And instead of making our own goop and saying, don't use that horrible stuff, use this stuff, we're looking and we're working with these makers around the world who, who create this incredible healthy product and we're providing them a platform to, um, to, to reach the consumer. And so now we're in shoes, we're in kids apparel, we're in the beauty business, 
And then the fourth one, I can't tell you about, but it's an entirely different industry than anything else that we've done, and it's massively crowded um, and of similar crowd as the other ones. So those four things, we're really going after industries where there's massive competition and trying to disrupt the hell out of them. In fact, we won't go into businesses where there isn't massive competition. We love, the more competition, the better, because that means there's a whole lot more opportunity um, and there's a lot more to disrupt. All right, so we're going to, I think we have another five minutes of the conversation and we'll do less than 30 seconds. I'll do some rapid fire go. ones. It's going to be great. Uh, so your, your number one method of creating audience growth when you're first starting a company? Uh, urgency and excitement. All right. Uh, e-commerce is crowded. How to cut through the noise. Give me three principles. Um, you've got to break form. Whether it's in your advertising creative, whether it's in how you communicate, you've got to do something distinctly different um, than what the customer is used to seeing, and that's always a risk. But you've got to take the risk because you've got to find a way to stand out. You've got to identify why the customer needs you. What on earth do you bring to them? And how do you communicate that to them simply and quickly and easily? But if they don't understand why they need you, then they're going to tune you out as, because there's a lot of other people that, that, that they can turn to. Um, and you've got to be constantly changing. You, here's our theory. You have to have new news every week. That the, the amount of retailers and e-commerce companies that s tell the same story with a different spin all the time is it's, you know, how annoyed and bored do we get? So our thesis is you need to have new news all the time that you're communicating to the right people at the right time. What is a future design or fashion trend that you are personally excited about? Well, I'm not a, I, as much as I spend a lot of time in the fashion industry, I <laughs> defer to a lot of other people in my company for, it's going to be all about plaid. I have no idea. Um, so um, I think the, the entire style approach to not, to, it used to be that expensive meant best. And I think the modern psyche and the transparency that the technology and e-commerce world has brought that doesn't say that if it's expensive, it's great, but that great style and great fashion is about an incredibly eclectic collection of things that you wear or buy or shop at. Real intelligence is that all the things in your kitchen aren't from Williams-Sonoma or Solita, but something's from Target, something's from this cute little boutique you walk by, something's from X, Y, or Z, and the same thing for your wardrobe, that, that you can be psyched to wear a sweatshirt from, from Company X in a fancy handbag, and, and boy, you love the down parka that they sell at Uniqlo, and, and the democracy and intelligence that's going into fashion versus the grossness of simply buying expensive brands, and that's giving you fashion cred. I think that trend is providing massive opportunity for a lot of people to build a really interesting set of brands because you no longer need to spend a trillion dollars and build trophy stores and have ridiculous models on glossy magazine pages to build excitement. You can do it through intelligence and excitement and emotion. Um, and I think we're seeing that right now. I think we're seeing a huge democratization of creation of brands. Is MGemi hiring? Uh, like mad. Like mad. Like mad. We have massive open positions. Um, See Ben after the show. So, so <laughs> by all means, uh, <laughs> we have lots of open jobs, both in Boston and New York. Do you support remote work culture? Uh, we, we promote uh, real flexibility. Cool. So um, we try not to write. We're a small company. So here's one of the challenges with remote and, and saying everyone can work from home whenever they want. So that's a fairy tale. And that's a fairy tale because in small organizations, you count on each other so much. And you count on drive-by, walk-by conversations so much. When you get big, 
It's actually much easier to have remote because there's layers of, of duplicacy, dupli duplicity. Duplicity. Um, there's layers of it. I'm not going to say it again. Um, <laughs> there, there's layers of, of repetition in organization. But when you're in a small company and, and the product team is you, and the design team is you and one other person, and X, Y, and Z, and you're working from home, and there's a drive-by conversation that just happened, it's really hard. So I actually think what a lot of entrepreneurs try to do is they try to set up a company based on this belief system that they have of, I'm going to create the most modern and thought-provoking culture of all time, and it doesn't work. And to me, what you need to provide is your organization with the flexibility of them being able to say to their manager, I need to work from home today. My you know, something happened. Or next week, I'm going to work from home a couple days because I need to. And when you provide a flexibility that people know they can do that, but generally speaking, we work from the office, that people actually never take advantage of it. They do what they think is right. And they're generally in the office, but when they need to be, they're not. When it comes to things like, like maternity leave and paternity leave, you need to do what's right. You need to let people take care of their families. I have, I have four kids at home. I have incredible life balance. My wife begs to differ completely. Um, um, but I have the life balance that I, that I love. And I never, I, 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 there's no rewards if you're the first person at work. There's certainly no rewards if you're the last person at work. Um, if, you don't, if you don't have happiness outside of work, you're never going to be happy at work. You're never going to provide your best work. You're probably going to be mediocre at what you do, actually. So our num my number one goal for everybody would be that they need to figure out their own life balance. It's not my responsibility. They need to figure out how they get their work done at the highest level of productivity. That it's a merit At the end of the day, we all should be building meritocracies. Like You do your work really well, and you take care of your peers, and you're kind to one another, and good luck. That, that's it. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, two more quick ones. What is Boston Startup scene missing? Not much. I think the biggest challenge that we have in the Boston Startup scene is on the creative side of the world, on the, on the um, design. So the reason that we've had to open offices in New York over the last 10 years for our businesses is a lack of fashion design. Um, when New York is as close as it is, it's, it's almost foolish not to go there because of the wealth of, des of graphic design, fashion design. Um, I think the technology infrastructure in Boston is as good as anywhere in the world. Um, I think the product management infrastructure is as good as anywhere in the world. Um, I think general leadership is great in the Boston market. I think the biggest issue is creative design and marketing. And if there was anything that we would try to, and the problem is all, a lot of the talent we look for was talent that came out of Rue La La because there weren't a, there's you know there's four or five really interesting places in Boston on the consumer on the consumer side to try to recruit people from um, and we need more of that so it's forced us to have to open offices in other cities um, but I I believe there's no challenge in building and starting businesses here um, and I want everyone to do it so that was my last question is why aren't you in New York why aren't or aren't why we? aren't you well personally, we are, no. personally I have four kids and a wife that lives here so they would object to it <laughs> um, uh, I will confess that I'm there two days a week every week cool. um, and um, I wouldn't ever want to live in New York like I couldn't I'm sorry New Yorkers but but it's like getting out of New York is my favorite part of New York um, <laughs> and and I go when I go there I go hard I get there early and I work for two straight days nonstop and maybe that's why I don't love it but I pack up every minute of every day, and, and then I get back to Boston. Um, I find Boston to be a far more livable city. I find it to be 
there's some, something, you know, the fact that you can't eat after 10 o'clock in Boston sucks, and the fact that you can have anything you want 24 hours a day in New York is great, but um, I, I just find Boston to be a lot more livable and a lot more sane. Um, and I think the people, and you know, I, I love the, the re I mean, the people in Boston are as real as they get. They're like, they're, there's no bullshit, there's no, it's just fucking Bostonians, it's awesome. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.